so glad you could join us for mornings at YCBC today. We want to thank you for being a part of our online family and we hope that this message encourages you, blesses you and helps you grow in your walk with Him. So let's get into the Word. Alright, so this morning we're looking at Jude. Um, Every disaster movie that you ever see seems to start with some scientist or expert being ignored. There's many movies that follow this pattern. Jurassic Park, Independence Day, The Day After Tomorrow, 2012, Don't Look Up, to name a few. Whether it's an alien invasion, dinosaurs, a natural disaster or climate change, everyone ignores the expert. The movies go on to show how individuals, people en masse, politicians and the media respond to the warnings. The scientist or expert is often seen as small or insignificant and annoying and the steps they suggest to mitigate disaster seem inconvenient and costly. The next two weeks we're going to be looking at the book of Jude. It's a bit like one of those ignored experts from the movies. It's only little, it's only got one chapter, it's tucked away at the back of our Bibles where we won't accidentally stumble across it, and it seems negative at first glance and asks us to leap into action. But rather than ignore this expert and his writings, I thought we'd have a look at what he has to say. So let's pray as we begin this morning. Lord, thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for the mercy, peace and love that you have given us through Christ that brings us together as your people. Lord, we thank you for the faithful who followed your leading in all they wrote about you and how to live a life for you, which we can read in our Bibles. We thank you for the faithful who have translated and gathered together the books that we now have in our Bibles. As we come to read and study one of the smallest books in your word today over the next two weeks, We pray your message will become clear to us and that we will be able to follow its warnings and encouragement. In Jesus' name, amen. I guess at first we need to look at how we know that Jude was an expert and why he's worth listening to. By birth, um, as Jeanette said, Jude was Jesus' younger half-brother. Jesus' dad was God, Jude's dad was Joseph, but they shared Mary as their mum. Jesus had at least four half-brothers in total. In Matthew 13.55, people were asking who Jesus was and someone says, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? And verse 56 mentions sisters but doesn't list their names. Jesus' brother Judas in Matthew here is the Jude who wrote the book that we're looking at today. Jude's the English version of the name Judas and most English translators have used Jude so we don't get this Judas mixed up with the other Judas who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Jude saw firsthand the works of Jesus which made him a credible witness to what Jesus and, um, and what Jesus and the apostles taught. So it makes him a bit of an expert. At first he didn't acknowledge that his brother was the son of God. John 7.5 says that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. But we read in Acts 1.14 that Mary and her sons were meeting with other Christians. So somewhere in between those times, Jude and at least one other brother, James, were converted. And Jude, along with his brother James, were leaders in the Jewish Christian community. The book of James was written by Jesus' brother, James. So we've got at least two books in our Bible that are written by Jesus' brothers. A lot of the time we look at missionary apostles like Peter and Paul who went out 
and reach the Gentiles for Christ. And that feels a little bit more relevant to us because we're Gentiles as well. So it feels more personal, but it's also important to note the work of Jude and James who were teaching the Jewish people back home in Israel and were leading them to Christ. Jude saw firsthand the work of Christ and the effect of, this, of Jesus' ministry and was front and centre in the work reaching his own people for Christ. So we can consider him a bit of an expert. It's also interesting to note that Jude introduces himself as James's brother and a servant of Jesus. Jude was a blood relative and lived with the most influential man in history, yet he doesn't make that claim here. His brother James opens his letter in a similar way, not claiming the blood link to Jesus, but says he's a servant of Jesus. This doesn't make their letters less authoritative or power, powerful, but it shows humility. And it shows that their new spiritual relationship with Jesus is more important than their family ties. This, Jude, this letter Jude wrote is based on his devotion for Jesus as his Lord and Saviour, not as his earthly brother. So he isn't trying to put on airs or big note himself. He very humbly opens his letter and expertly writes what God wants him to say. So again, very much an expert. We aren't sure who Jude was writing to in particular or why, but we get a general sense through the letter that he was writing to Jewish Christians. In verses 5 to 15, which we'll look at a little bit later, he refers to things that aren't all that clear to us Gentile Christians but would have been evident to the Jewish Christians of the day. He says at the beginning of verse 5, though you already know this. So that along with the writings that he refers to gives us a sense that he's writing to people that were already Christians but have grown up in the Jewish faith. What is clear by his earnestness in verse 3 is that something was going on that made him feel compelled to write this letter. So we might not know who he was writing to exactly, but there was an obvious pressing need for what he wrote. Verse 3. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvations we share, I feel felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Now, we don't always hear the compelling passion behind the written word, so I might read it again. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted for God's holy people. Can you hear Jude's urgency and passion in the opening of the letter? The letters of the New Testament weren't just written words. They were words that were meant to be written, read aloud to the people or churches that they went to. The person that read them would often read them passionately and would often adopt the mannerisms of the person who wrote it so that it would sound and look like the original writer was reading the letter to them. So rather just than just ink on the page, the letters were meant to be read aloud with passion. In verse 4, he mentions certain individuals Again, he doesn't name or shame anyone specifically, but along with his earnestness in verse 3, we get a sense of what he's about to say is important for something big that was going on. So what was he writing about? 
I just read verse 3, verse 4 says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a licence for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. Verse 16 describes these people as grumblers, fault finders, followers of their own evil desires, boasters, flatterers, and verse 18 calls them scoffers. These were people causing trouble within the church, but not always in an obvious way. They might follow along and seem part of the church and followers of Christ, but not really. A bit like another Judas, who followed along with the apostles, seeming to be one of the followers of Christ, yet sold out for 30 pieces of silver. These people might seem godly at a glimpse, yet twist God's teaching just a little here and there so they can live a life without limits, giving in to any vice they choose, and they want to drag people in with them. They grumble and complain and find fault. They boast about themselves and their own achievements and aren't beyond flattering others to get their own way. They pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus. So what does it mean that they pervert the grace of God? The New Living Translation says it this way, I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvellous grace allows us to live immoral lives. A bit of a background to grace. Looking back to the Old Covenant, originally made with Abraham and given in detail through Moses, God's people were bound by law, very specific laws, and the Jews themselves added more laws to the ones Moses gave. In Deuteronomy, we read about the Israelites on the threshold of the Promised Land. They'd been rescued from slavery, had wandered in the desert, and had seen the most incredible miracles of God. Moses spent time telling them what they had to do in the Promised Land how they will follow God and set themselves apart from all the other nations. They were given laws about what to eat, how to treat one another, how to worship God. They were ready. These people were as ready as they could be to enter the promised land and become a nation of God. And God speaks to Moses and says that they're going to blow it. They've all been called, rescued, sustained, prepared for the incredible gift of becoming God's people in a nation of their own. And before they even set foot in the land, God says they're going to muck it up. But God had a plan all along, a plan to show God's people that they could not achieve anything without him, a plan to save his people once and for all despite their sin. This plan was the plan of grace leading to Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension. No longer would God's people have to live under law, but under grace. No longer would they have to follow the letter of the law, but would live under grace. And this grace came through Jesus. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is grace, and being Christians, we live under that grace. But if we aren't living under law anymore, how do we live a life of grace? How do we live a grace-filled life without rules to follow? Under law, things like having mildew in your house, eating meat and dairy together, that means no cheeseburgers, 
wearing two types of fibres in your clothes, that was all wrong. And you would have to put safety fencing around all your roofs in case someone fell off them by law. There's a whole heap of laws that God gave through Moses and if that wasn't enough, the Israelite people added a whole heap of oral laws on top of them so that they, they just buried themselves under so much law that they could not possibly live a free life or a good one. They had so many laws to follow. You couldn't help but be a sinner. All it takes is to break one law and you've automatically become a sinner and you've fallen short of the law. Under grace, none of these restrictions now apply. We're free. We're no longer bound by the law of the old covenant. The old has gone, the new has come. We're under a new covenant, one where we follow Christ without those rules and restrictions. We've been set free from it and the Bible warns us not to pick it back up again and chain ourselves to it once again. God wants us to live a life of freedom, not bound by law, but through Jesus. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Does this mean we can live however we like, though, provided we've given our lives to Christ? The simple answer is yes and no. We're free to eat and drink what we want to. We're free to live our lives more or less the way the rest of the world does. We can holiday, work, drive cars, wear what we like, and now eat cheeseburgers. However, the, love, the Lord our God, if we love the Lord our God with all our hearts, souls and minds, if we've been transformed by the grace given to us on the cross, if we've been forgiven, if we've fully turned from the old life we had before we gave our lives to Christ, then we no longer live how the rest of the world does. We become set apart or holy. 1 Corinthians 10 is quite clear that while we have the right to do everything, not everything is beneficial and that we should not cause others to sin because of what we do. Doing anything doesn't mean sinning. It means in all, in all those things in a normal life that others do, we don't sin. But we don't just do everything we want either. We follow God, we set ourselves apart for him and we serve others and consider them. I spoke a couple of weeks ago about loving our God with all our heart, soul and mind and loving our neighbours because this was the intent of the laws to begin with. Living a life of grace isn't just about doing what we want or desire but following God in love and serving others in love. Opening our hearts fully to the grace of God and living a grace-filled life is liberating and freeing. Others may look at our lives and think our lives are boring or restrictive but our lives are free from the condemnation of sin. The weight of our sin has been lifted by grace and we are free from the punishment of it. A life of grace is one that is saved by God, lived in love of God, lived in service of God and lived in freedom in God. God's amazing grace is life-altering and life-transforming. Jude warns us, though, that some people were perverting grace and living lives of immorality. Some people were saying it didn't matter what they did because God had forgiven them, so they could now live however they want to. They may not have been doing big obvious sins, but they were using grace as an excuse to keep on living how they were. 
there were those in Jesus' day that thought that the more they sinned, the more they'd be forgiven and the more grace they would get. Romans 6, 1-4 says this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We therefore are buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united in, with him in death like this, we will certainly also be with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. A life of grace isn't one that ignores the old covenant. A life of grace isn't one that ignores the warnings of those who came before. A life of grace isn't one that keeps on sinning and doing things we shouldn't. A life of grace isn't one that ignores others and ignores serving others. Instead, a life of grace is one that is, is transformed. It's one that is full of God. It's a life with a personal, intimate and loving relationship with God. A life of grace is balance between knowing things are permissible and not causing others to stumble. A life of grace is one that honours and serves God in every part of it, not just the bits people see. A life of grace does everything it can to love others as God would love them. A life of grace speaks of God's love and saving grace. Jude has a couple of warnings, I think, for us. Be careful who you listen to and be careful how we live. We need to be cautious who we are listening to. We need to be discerning who we listen to and who we associate with, especially if those people claim to be Christian but don't show the transformation of Jesus in their lives. Those people could be saying they're Christian but use grace as an excuse to keep on sinning. I once knew a guy who said that speed limits were stupid, so he did whatever he wanted because he said God had already forgiven him. These people are out there. Verses 17 to 18 of Jude says, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. To pervert the grace of God and live an immoral life is to deny Jesus and his work on the cross. It is a life without the spirit. Nick did a sermon a while ago that talked about testing what type of fruit is on the tree and it's available on our website. I encourage you to have a listen to it. If you go to the search bar on the website and type in fruit, the, the sermon will come up. Nick talked about how we need to test the fruit of those we listen to. If something is of God, it will produce fruit. Galatians 5, 22 to 23 says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If something is of God, if someone is living for God and is transformed by God, then they can't help but produce fruit. And we can see if the teaching of others is in the grace of God and the Spirit, by the fruit they produce. 
However, those that pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality will not bear spiritual fruits. Instead, they will be people who use grace as a license to live however they like. Instead of the fruits of the Spirit, verse 16 tells us they will be grumblers, fault finders, following whatever evil desire they have. They will be boasters and flatterers to get people to do what they want. We need to protect ourselves. We need to love those people as Jesus would, but be aware so that their bad habits don't influence us. Sometimes we might need to walk away or distance ourselves from those people. We need to love them, but not be influenced by them. Verses 5 to 15. We didn't read them out this morning, and at first glance they're a bit hard to understand. I'm not going to go into detail because I feel that sort of sends us down a rabbit hole and we could be talking about that part for hours. And it distracts us from that message that Jude had for us. The verses are hard to understand because there's so much in them that's steeped in Jewish history that isn't well known to us. But we'll have a quick look. And I encourage you to read these verses yourself at home and find a good commentary that can go through these verses one by one for you. Verses 5 to 7 are a reminder of the past, of God's punishment and past disobedience. He uses three examples. Israel was delivered, but those who, died disobeyed, uh, those who disobeyed died in the desert. Angels have a special calling, but those who disobeyed were punished. And lastly, Sodom and Gomorrah, which was destroyed because of the immorality there. Our God is a God of love, but also a God of justice. He has given us all a free choice to follow him or disobey him. To follow him is life, to walk away is death. So the messages in these verses is to remind God's followers of this choice and the reward or punishment that follows. If we love God and live a life of grace though, we don't need to worry about that punishment because through Jesus we've got the reward of heaven waiting for us. Verses 8 to 15 are a little harder to get our heads around. They talk of an archangel Michael and a fight with the devil over the body of Jesus. They talk of Cain and Balaam and Korah's rebellion. They talk of Enoch. Through these verses, Jude looks into Israel's history and quotes texts that we don't have in our Bibles. These texts didn't meet the strict criteria to be included. They weren't always historically correct, weren't always written by credible authors, but often contained truthful bits, and that's what Jude is focusing on in these verses. The bits he is focusing on from these texts here are people of the past who've perverted grace to live immoral lives. He pronounces their doom. Jude says in these false verses that they are false. They have no time for spiritual words, and, their, and limit their lives in the physical world. Limit their lives to the physical world. And as leaders, they lead those that follow them into this life as well. By being limited to the physical world and not having time for the spiritual one, these people are doomed. These people knew God and walked away, perverting his grace to live a physical life. 2 Peter 2.21 says... If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord, Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Judas Iscariot followed Jesus. 
He knew Jesus. He saw firsthand the miracles and teachings straight from Jesus' mouth. He was an apostle in a position of leadership. But when it came to it, he ignored the spiritual world Jesus offered and looked at the physical and walked away to the tune of 30 pieces of silver. We need to be careful how we live our lives. We need to be careful who we follow and who we listen to. We need to live in grace, not perverted, so we can carry on doing everything we did before we gave our lives to God, but transformed by grace, living each moment for the spiritual and not the physical. These people who pervert grace and live immoral lives may be prosperous because their sole focus will be on gaining success, gaining money, gaining pleasure. It's easy to be jealous of these people. It might be tempting to follow them and do what they do because we want what they have. What we need to do is to see their prosperity though as limited, as finite. It's only for this life. A life of grace is infinite and unlimited. We can look to our leaders and others but we also need to look at ourselves. I think we would miss Jude's concern for contending for the faith if we didn't look at ourselves. So I want to ask this morning, how do you live your life? Do you follow ungodly desires and mere natural instincts like the people in the passage that we've read this morning? Are you working to live or are you living to work? By that I mean, are you working to live a wonderful physical life full of comfort and ease doing everything you did before you became a Christian, following any want or vice, or are you living to work for God's kingdom? Are you working to live in the physical, or are you living to work for God's kingdom? This is something each of us as Christians have to weigh, has to weigh up. God wants us to have a life of prosperity, but that can only come when we are fully immersed into a life of grace, dedicating all we do to serve and love God. Prosperity isn't about how beautiful your house is, what your income is, what you know, what car you drive. Those things can all be used in furthering God's kingdom, but prosperity isn't about the physical world, it's found in the spiritual. All those other things in life are lovely, but not essential. They're superfluous to the spiritual realm and a life of grace. The things that prevent us having a life of grace may not be big things. They're anything that you rely on more than God. It could be drugs or alcohol, legal or not. It could be that you can't possibly function in a day without doing a particular thing or having a particular thing and then it replaces God. Our lives need to be lived for the spiritual, not the physical. We work towards a life with God forever, not for the few moments that we're here on earth. Heaven is our goal and our reward for a life lived in grace. If we allow God to shape us and mould us, we will overflow with love and grace. We will do everything for him. We will show those spiritual gifts. We will be contending for our faith and receive our reward in the next life. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, My grace is sufficient for you. We need nothing but grace. 
A life of grace is one that relies and is satisfied by God's grace alone. Jude mentions contending for the faith. Contending for the faith isn't passive. Jude urges us to, and felt compelled to tell us to contend for the faith. Our faith and a life in grace is worked on and fought for. Hebrews 4 tells us to hold firm to the faith and approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that one day we can say, like in the hymn, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. We need to hold firm. We need to contend. There's a famous saying that says, no guts, no glory. A life of grace is one of guts. It's one that contends and fights and works towards glory. We do all we can to keep in the faith and share it with all those we encounter and approach God's throne of grace with boldness and confidence. I've mentioned Judas Iscariot and how he sold out for 30 pieces of silver. That was his price. He followed Jesus but was willing to betray Jesus for a price. My question for each of us over the next two weeks is what is your price? How far are you willing to go for God? Is there a boundary or threshold that you won't cross for God? If God asks you to give up your home and serve him in some way, will you give it up? Or is the price of your home your price? If God asks you to give up a lifestyle, will you do it? Or is your lifestyle your price? Do you follow Jesus except for dot, 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 fill that space? Do you have boundaries on what you are willing to give up for God? Judas' price was 30 pieces of silver. At that point, he gave up contending for his faith. In today's money, this was not much, maybe a couple of hundred dollars, maybe a bit more. Nowhere near the cost of a home or anything more. Even back then, 30 pieces of silver was a pittance to sell out for, to betray Jesus for. At what price will we give up contending for our faith? What is our price for giving up on Jesus? Having a home, a car, a job and so on aren't bad things in themselves, but we need to either use those things to serve God and others or be willing to give them all up if God asks us. If we hold on too tight to those things, they become our price. If those things get in the way of us producing spiritual fruit, living a life full of grace and contending for our faith, then we need to cut them away and give them up. We do this because we have the faith that has been entrusted to us as God's people. Jude tells us in verse 3 that this is our purpose. We contend for the faith. We give our all to it and for it because we've been entrusted with it by God. And we'll talk more about that next week. As we finish this morning, I want to ask you to consider your life and how you live it and who you listen to and follow. Will you contend for the faith? Live in grace no matter what the cost, big or small. Will you follow godly desires and follow the spirit? Will you work for life in the spiritual, working towards a goal of heaven and eternal life? Will you use your life in, to live in the grace of God 
and to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Saviour in all that you do. Will you surrender to God's grace, mercy and love and follow him with everything you have? Grace is sufficient, we were told in 2 Corinthians. God's grace is sufficient. We need nothing else. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for the life of grace we can live when we know him as our Lord and Saviour. Lord, we thank you for entrusting us, your holy people, with faith. We pray that we will contend for that faith, that we will do whatever it takes and give up whatever hinders us so that we can contend for that faith. Help us be aware of those who pervert your grace, who twist it so they can live however they like. Help us be discerning about who we listen to and what we allow in our lives. Help us look past the temporary in this life to the eternal life coming. Help us to show the freeing, grace-filled life that can be lived in you so that others might come to know you as their Lord and Saviour too. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. As you head back into your week, we want to encourage you to stay in his word, stay in his love, and stay strong in your faith. Don't forget to keep up to date with what's happening via Facebook, Instagram, or via our website at ycbc.church. See you soon.